From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Revere, the Executive Director of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, and the former United States Ambassador for Global Women's Issues. This season, we are collaborating with the United Nations Department of Peace Operations and Our Secure Future to explore women's roles in bringing lasting peace to communities, whether it be through grassroots activism, in peace negotiations, journalism, politics, or as uniformed peacekeepers. There's, you know, peace building with a capital P, and then there's other forms of peace building that are also very relevant to the resolution of conflict and to the recovery of, of communities and societies after war. That's Dr. Jessica Smith, the Research and Policy Director at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. You might think of peace building as peace talks that take place in big rooms between country officials. As Dr. Smith just defined it, that's peace building with a capital P. But peace building takes many forms, usually within communities, between coworkers, families, and neighbors. This season, we learn about building, keeping, and sustaining peace, and the many roles women play in doing that. In this episode, Dr. Smith will help us understand how women around the world face similar challenges and dreams for building peace in their communities. Every form of inequality is exacerbated during situations of conflict. And so this creates disproportionate impacts of conflict on women and other groups that are marginalized within a given society. During and after conflict, women are very active. They're active in attending to the daily needs of their families and their communities, but they're also engaged in daily acts of resistance against violence and oppression. They're actively demanding their rights. They're calling for accountability and transparency. And in big and in small ways, they're demanding equality and justice and also dignity and the right to a happy and prosperous and peaceful future. These critical everyday contributions to international peace and security were formally recognized by the United Nations Security Council in 2000 in a landmark resolution known as 1325 on women, peace, and security. For the first time, women's leadership was officially affirmed as critical to international peace and security. The resolution also underscored the link between gender inequality and fragility, and between women's security and international security. We wanted to speak to someone actively building peace in her community during a time of conflict. So we reached out to Annie, who is from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Annie Tingamanditi Modi is a gender activist, women's rights defender, and expert on women's leadership development and political participation. She's dedicated herself to championing women's participation in peace building and ensuring they are empowered to be agents of change. This conversation with Annie was conducted at the UN headquarters in New York City by Sophie Boudre, 
a UN peacekeeping communicator. Sophie spoke to Annie about what influenced her to take up this work. Why was I very much inspired with my father? Because I think he, he is the man that did not distinguish between a girl and a boy. He, he treated children as uh, both equal and uh, pushed us to give the best of ourselves. He just considered his children as human beings with potential to contribute in the environment. After her father died, Annie was displaced from her home in central DRC and fled to Goma in the east. Women in Goma have and continue to experience a high rate of sexual and gender-based violence. War broke out soon after Annie moved there. The war made it more difficult to access food, clean water, and other basic services. This is why I'm very much uh, attached on working on sexual and reproductive health and rights and the whole menstruation uh, management because I went through the, uh, the difficult situation of a, a, a little girl, uh, a teen, teenager who did not have access to pride, for instance, who did not have information, quality information on her uh, sexual uh, health and right, by the way, <laughs> this exposed me to a situation where at 17 years old, I was already pregnant. I gave birth just two months after my 18th birthday. So I was from the orphan girl, I became a teen mother, uh, still in the war zone. But when my daughter was born, everything changed. I, I didn't want her to go through what, what I went through. And uh, then I had a new uh, way of considering life because I, I wanted to give the best I could to the world to create a better world, not just for me, for my daughter and for, if I could, for all the girls <laughs> of the world. So my way of considering life totally changed and the country was divided in two. She was just one month when we had to leave the eastern part to try and reach uh, the west part in Kinshasa. But Annie wasn't safe in Kinshasa either. She faced discrimination for not looking or sounding Congolese. So she fled to South Africa with her daughter to seek asylum and lived there as a refugee for over 10 years. Though she faced more challenges there, Annie promised herself she would become a voice for the voiceless. I think this is where I found my calling and uh, started to work from South Africa refugee centers. It's moved from there to being a volunteer with uh, uh, a few NGOs. Uh, we decided to come together as a Southern African young women movement to organize ourselves. Annie united with other women and women's organizations and is now a board member of the Dynamic of Feminine Youth for the promotion, protection, and defense of young women's rights. She's also the co-founder and executive director of the NGO Afia Mama, which means women's health. It's an organization working on sexual and reproductive health and rights to improve women and girls' well-being. If you are not supported, if nobody believes you, if nobody listens to your voice, 
if you have impression that the world has forgotten about your existence, uh, this is what kills women and girls the most. This is also why I, I vow to become the voice of the voiceless because when women knows that somebody he's um talking for them somebody he's making sure that their voice are heard they need are considered the space is being created for them to to contribute to participate and to to build you know a different environment this gives them more hope and this actually accelerates the healing process and this is the only thing that makes women to go from survivor to agent of change Annie returned to live in the DRC in 2012 and now lives in Kinshasa in the DRC women have borne the brunt of the conflict regardless women have been key agents in transforming their circumstances in times of conflict. And the only way we can contribute in preventing more violence in the future is ensuring that we have more women in power, we have more women sitting around the table. Eastern DRC has a long history of conflict, political instability, and authoritarian rule, which has led to an ongoing humanitarian crisis and displacement of tens of thousands of people. As so often is the case, women and girls have been immensely impacted by the violence, and armed groups continue to use sexual violence as a tactic to assert control in Eastern DRC. This all impacts the important work of women human rights defenders like Annie. At one point, Annie received anonymous and threatening emails. Her reputation was also publicly smeared. She told us about how she has dealt with this suppression. I'm the person who always sees a glass half full. The work we're doing does not always please everybody. Like I said, we're coming from patriarchal system where our first challenge is maybe our own brothers or family or parents who would have loved to see me <laughs> 20 years ago be, you know, like conform as other women, be less vocal about certain things. Don't talk about uh, what men are doing because this is men's issue. And um, it, it became a challenge again when you, you're going against, you know, against uh, the social norms. Uh, then the challenges will move from your working environment to your private life. Women, the war always ends on our body. Congolese women face significant barriers to economic and political opportunities. Women's political participation through running for office, voting, or actively participating in democracy and peace processes has remained low. Annie herself is contributing to the political process to build peace in her community. The regular interaction with uh, our, our head of state, for instance, it's also a space that came after we have done a lot of lobbying and advocacy as he was still in opposition, you know, like telling them that what we need our leaders to do once they are 
leading the country. Women need to be heard. Women need to contribute. I will tell you, this is a, a space that has really uh, accelerated women's participation. This is exactly how we moved from having 10% of women at central government to 17% on his first uh, governor, government. And then now we have 27 women with each time having one woman as the vice prime minister, which we did not have before. UN peacekeeping operations partner with and support local women leaders and organizations. In DRC, the UN peacekeeping operation called MINUSCO has supported local women's networks in conflict resolution efforts and to map threats to women to better protect them. What I found in my conversations with women who have been engaged in, in grassroots peacebuilding is that the informal and formal networks of solidarity that they've created with other women have been critical to their ability to create change in their lives and in their communities. And women that I've worked with have described that their strength and resilience was bound up with the strength and the resilience of the women around them, and that together they shouldered the burdens of rebuilding after war, especially in situations where there's not a functioning state or you can't rely on the government to meet the daily needs of people, uh, where there's not a social safety net. So these networks then become the social safety net for women who are working to rebuild in their communities. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more incredible peace builders right after this. Climate change, income inequality, the fight for democracy. Now more than ever, the issues facing our communities are global ones, and they can be pretty overwhelming. On Trending Globally, a podcast from Brown University, You'll hear clear, compelling analysis of the planet's most pressing issues from the world's leading experts. It'll help you see current events, whether in your backyard or on the other side of the globe, in a whole new light. Subscribe to Trending Globally wherever you listen to podcasts. Both Annie and our next guest built peace in their communities, but they each build peace at different stages of conflict. Annie is currently building peace during a time of conflict. Our next guest is tackling how to rebuild a community in the aftermath of a conflict while also continuing to face division. Melton Barak reminds her community of the life and culture that they share on the island of Cyprus. Cyprus became independent in 1960 with a constitution that was intended to balance the interests of Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot communities. But as our guest Meltem will share, peace is not just created between a few men in a powerful room. Violence broke out between the two communities. Attempts to reunify the island have so far been without result although relations between North and South have improved over the years. To this day, most Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots live separately in northern and southern regions of the island, divided by a buffer zone controlled by the UN peacekeeping mission. 
The masculine narrative of the conflict and its resolution is still very dominant. Women's voices are not taken seriously in the political arena, and the peace negotiations have sidelined women. While mistrust and fear remain in the wake of the hostility, women have taken many active efforts to build peace across their communities. Melton Barak is one of them, a young Cypriot from the northern coastal city of Famagusta. She studied abroad for many years and recently created the podcast SESTA to discuss culture as a form of peacebuilding on the island. Reporter Rosie Haralambus, also based in Cyprus, asked Meltem more about her efforts to build peace and community through culture. Hello, my name is Rosie Haralambus, and today I'm speaking to Meltem Burak. Meltem is a creative young Cypriot who believes, and I quote, that peace can only be sustainable if it is diverse and inclusive where women and young people's voices are heard at the Peace Talks table. Meltem, welcome to the program. Hello, Rosie. Thank you very much for having me today. Sometimes the discussions around culture and also around peace building in Cyprus happen to be very insular. They happen to be very repetitive. I mean, people tend to talk about the same things all the time without um, globalizing the issue. In that sense, uh, living abroad and particularly uh, studying in the Netherlands for my uh, uh, undergraduate and postgraduate degrees provided me with that international background where I see the problems happening in Cyprus from a global perspective. Of, of course, there are things which are peculiar to Cyprus because we are a divided country. Now, you were born, obviously, after 1974. So when you were growing up, it was already a divided island. What memories do you have of your childhood in that situation? Well, I've always heard the word Greek. Uh, in Turkish, it's called Rum. Um, but the, the word Greek, the notion Greek was an abstract concept. It was an enemy. You know, it was, I, I didn't know who Greeks were. I did. By the way, maybe it's important to also say uh, here for particularly people who are not from Cyprus that there are, you know, in Cyprus, we don't only have Turkish and Greek speaking communities. We also have an Armenian community. We have a Maronite community. We have a Latin community. And there are people who are coming to Cyprus at the moment. I've always heard about this abstract war and how terrible Greeks were and how they attacked us and how they burnt, burnt down our houses. So um, and I grew up hating people I didn't know until basically the borders were opened and then we could cross to the other side and see those other people and understand that they were actually people and they had same concerns and they were not monsters. The, the reconciliation process in that sense started with me after the opening of the borders as well. Now, I wonder whether or not the way you were brought up and how your parents talked about the division in Cyprus, in a sense, gave you a different point of view? Hmm. Well, um, maybe it's a shame to say this, but I prefer to be honest. <laughs> I had a quite, uh, <laughs> let's say, nationalist upbringing. I mean, at school, it was 
nationalist already because this is how you construct nation states you have to like you said ingrain this dichotomy into people's minds and education is one of the best ways to do that but also family level i mean because my grandma for instance experienced war herself um she didn't necessarily have <laughs> very positive ideas about let's say the so-called greeks but con controversially i would also say she spoke greek she used to live with greeks uh, her mother spoke greek better than turkish and once the borders were opened i remember those uh greek speaking cypriots from the village of risules who came to visit us after what 30 years of division and then you know she was just friendly to them and they sat at the same table and yeah i guess once the borders were really established in Cyprus in 1974, the division was not only a physical one, it was also a uh, psychological one. So, and these narratives, which we constantly heard from the top-down, uh, let's say, institutions, we also internalized them within time, including my grandma. But now it's different. It's interesting that you gave examples of the female members of your family, because I think that in social situations, it's the women who get together and talk. So that brings me on to asking you about your podcast and the idea that women have to be at the talks table because they do, don't they, bring something very different to any negotiating process. You know, I believe it was in 2021 and there were negotiation rounds in Cyprus. So between the Greek side and Turkish side and all negotiators were men. Now this represents an endemic problem in Cyprus and it is a social problem. It is a cultural problem and we cannot solve that problem only with numbers. So for instance, I can talk for myself, the fact that I'm a woman by itself doesn't say much. You can replace hundreds of women peacemakers to the negotiation, negotiation tables. It wouldn't say much unless we change the patriarchal culture. So gender equality is not a woman's issue. It is a social issue which should be responded in a collective way. We have to include women. We have to include man and also those people who don't ident identify themselves as women and man. We also very much have to include the younger generation. They're another sector of society that have been totally sidelined when it comes to ideas of how we can achieve rapprochement in Cyprus. Oh, absolutely. We need the young voices because in my humble opinion, I mean, the peace talks, so-called peace talks in Cyprus, they do not fit into the realities of the 21st century. We have gender equality, we have race problem that also applies to Cyprus, and we have to incorporate that with an intersectional approach to peace. And only young people could do that because it is there, and I still consider myself as a young person, it is our reality now. It's your future. Yes. Let's talk a bit about your podcast, because Sesta, I believe, looks at culture in particular. So explain how you came to do this podcast and what the idea behind it is. So this podcast, 
arose from a need that we need to have quality conversations on culture and we need to um, understand the relationship between culture and peace building because peace is never a political treaty that's signed between a couple of men. And then you would ask me, what is culture? Because I have this conversation with my interviewees all the time. I ask people to join my program and they tell me, well, what I'm doing is not necessarily cultural. Well, in my podcast, I'm making use of two definitions of culture because there is no universal definition of culture. It's not a static concept. It changes, it adapts, it evolves based on the scientific, technological, social developments. So in my podcast, first of all, I make use of the definition of culture in the form of arts. So cinema, theater, literature, uh, painting, etc. But culture is not only about high culture. Culture is also about social meanings. And beliefs. Absolutely. And people tend to forget that. And these social meanings, they are always constructed by top-down and bottom-up uh, institutions and interactions. And they have a great impact on how we understand ourselves and how we understand the others. Let's move on as well to what you're hoping for the future in Cyprus. Is there indeed hope for the future of Cyprus? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be very frank with you, Rosie. I don't think that by the end of my time, I will see Cyprus unified. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope it will be the, I, I, I hope it will be otherwise, but there is hope because people are working, people are being creative despite all the obstacles, people are coming together online and offline to do something positive. So there is hope. And if there ever will be a unified Cyprus, it will be thanks to those creative people who are using all their tangible and intangible assets to bring about a positive change in this little island. It does sound to me like you don't have a great deal of confidence in the leaders on both sides of the Green Line. So let me finally ask you what you would like to see from the leaders in Cyprus. Now, we have to also remember that elections are coming up, so the leaders could change. Hmm. Well, to be honest, I mean, I don't think, like I said, I don't think peace is something that is constructed at a top-down level. Um, so. I don't have a lot of trust in leaders. Yes, that's true. And I don't think a lot will change after elections either, because I mean, the mentalities don't change. Uh, if we have new um, leaders who could approach peace with an intersectional perspective, yes, of course, things could change, but their top-down efforts should always be complemented with the bottom-up and divorce with the bottom-up interactions that take place between people, because that's how you establish sustainable peace. So the message basically is that it's up to each and every citizen of Cyprus. They're the bottom bit of the bottom-up to decide what they want and to push for it. Absolutely. Everyone has a responsibility to be creative. Dr. Smith reflected on how Meltem's work falls into peace building. And she makes clear that part of rebuilding after war or conflict is rebuilding connections within one's community. 
in order to bring the threads of a community back together in the aftermath of violence and devastation and to recreate a sense of normalcy. Part of rebuilding after war is rebuilding connections within your community, things that people can come together on. We can't underestimate the power of art, and we also can't underestimate how important culture is and how peace is negotiated between people, and that that work happens daily in seemingly ordinary interactions. And that's where the real work of implementing peace happens. And arts and culture play a role in that, but women are also incredibly influential in those spaces in terms of creating opportunities for people to come together and and to build toward a future that's brighter for everyone. This kind of peace building is a bottom-up approach. Dr. Smith agrees with Meltem in that top-down approaches can be insufficient on their own. In such cases, we often see resurgence of conflict. But Dr. Smith says top-down peacebuilding practices are starting to shift. The peacebuilding field has really begun to pay attention to the importance of local knowledge and local ownership over peacebuilding processes and also how important it is for the top-down approaches to be informed by the lived experiences and the knowledge of people um, who are most affected by these issues, and that includes women. Dr. Smith makes clear, peace is not only an outcome. It's a relational process, an ongoing and continuous process that is created and negotiated between people in a community and where women play a central role. If we aren't also paying attention to the in-between spaces where women are making really important contributions, then we miss a whole aspect of peacebuilding work that's really critical. Peace is not necessarily an outcome. There's a peace agreement that can be an outcome of a negotiation, but building peace is a relational process. And women are deeply engaged um, in their families and in their communities in creating those conditions under which peace can really take root. So we can have the most beautiful peace agreement, but where that actually makes a difference in people's lives is in their daily interactions, in their lived experiences, in their ability to feel safe or empowered or like they have agency and are able to make decisions that have an impact on the future trajectory of their lives and their country and their families. Stay tuned for our next episode. Next week, we're going to learn about the impact women have when they participate in more formal peace negotiations and processes. You can find Meltem's podcast, SESTA, S-E-S-T-A, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. The third season of Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security in partnership with the UN Department of Peace Operations and Our Secure Future. It is produced by Wonder Media Network. If you like what you've heard, please share it far and wide 
You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening app or at seekingpeacepodcast.com.